Welcome to the Westminster Chapel podcast. For more information and to support our mission to London and beyond, please visit westminsterchapel.org.uk. John chapter 4 verses 1 to 15. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sakia, near the plot of ground Jacob has given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it, from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. Whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. Well, hello everybody. It's great to see you. My name is Howard, I'm the pastor here at Westminster Chapel, and everyone is welcome in our church family. That is part one of the readings this morning. I hope you appreciate the fact that we broke down 42 verses into three sections, especially for you. I hope you appreciate that I've turned up for the first time, I think, in my life. Um, my trousers, because it's so hot, how are we keeping cool? Um, I'm, I've gone for turn-ups. It is not a fashion statement. It is just practical necessity for today. Um, you're joining us. We're in a series that's called Amazing Love. Um, we're in week eight of this series, and it is a deep dive into the first century biography written by John about the person of Jesus Christ. And today's message is all about saying, so long to shame. So long to shame. <laughs> now, shame is a really sensitive and it's a really personal subject. So I just thought uh, maybe we'll start on a bit of a lighter note um, and I'll share some shame memes to set the scene. So I think we've got a slide here of those. Um, I couldn't resist the sort of the Star Wars reference here. Um, and I want to just, my question for you is as you read and engage with these, is which one do you most identify with? 
You don't need to answer that. I imagine there is one. And there is one for me too. Shame says, I am not good enough. Shame says, there is something wrong with me. Shame says, I am dirty, ugly, worthless. Shame says, when it counts the most, I, I won't be enough. It is the narrative of the dark side. This is how um, psychiatrist Kurt Thompson puts it. Medical doctor in America, he says, it is the primary tool that evil leverages, out of which emerges everything that we could call sin. Its power lies in its subtlety and its silence. It is the unspoken primal obstacle to our growth and flourishing. If it were a member of the periodic table of elements, it might be carbon, the element common to all living organisms. Everyone in this room and everyone watching online, hello by the way, has shame. We all experience some form of shame. Some of us are more aware of that shame and how it impacts us than others. I didn't understand how impacted I was by my own shame narrative of I'm not good enough until I started leading this church. What about you? What about you? Shame affects all of us. Every one of us struggles with shame. And I think that's why I can identify well with the woman in John chapter 4. At the hottest point of the day, when everybody else was resting in the shade, she came to collect water, something that was almost always done by women together in community. So she was self-isolating because of shame. I know what that's like, do you? I'm not going to ask you to put up your hand. It would increase your sense of shame. Um, but you get that your sense. I've struggled with body shame in the past. And it comes up and it resurfaces. What was this woman's shame? Well, it was related to her relationship history. That's why she was isolating from others and why they were keeping their distance from her. And maybe you feel a sense of relationship shame. Perhaps you've been divorced. Perhaps you've slept with someone outside of marriage. Perhaps you still are. Perhaps you've had an abortion, been involved in an abortion. Perhaps you're watching porn. You can't break that cycle. Shame. A sense of shame. We all carry this sense of shame. But Jesus cared for and loved this woman. And he will for you too. He'll receive you and he will accept you. Just like he did the woman caught in adultery. He said to her, go and sin no more. For the part of your shame that is caught up with sin, that's the reaction that Jesus would give you. He won't turn you away. So what specifically was the cause then of this woman's shame? Well, it was that she had been married five times and now was living with, most likely sleeping with, a man whom she was not married to. 
And some have categorized her anything from at one end of the spectrum. She's like this, this sexually immoral woman for what she's done, sleeping around. I mean, maybe she's sleeping with a man for economic protection because there was no welfare state. And she would have been really vulnerable, isolated on her own. At that end of the spectrum, you have those that see her more in the realms of perhaps a prostitute or someone who's kind of doing this for economic necessity. And then at the other end of the spectrum, you'd have people who would say, these men that she was married to, they could have died. She could be a widow. Or because of the way that the divorce law was set up at that time, it was all in the man's favor. So he could divorce, a man could divorce a woman for next to nothing, throw her out and discard her, and she'd be damaged goods, find it very hard to find another man who would have the honor of, do her the honor of marrying her. And it could have been a combination. We don't know. My theory on this is, is it's probably a combination because... No human being is without sin, right? So there's going to be something of her own sin that's causing her shame in this. And then there's going to be something of the sin that's been done to her that is causing a sense of shame. They're working together. There's amazing contrast here as well when we meet this woman. The last person that Jesus interacted with is in John chapter 3, 1 to 1, was a man called Nicodemus. He was a man, for a start. He was a Jew. He was a rabbi. He was a member of the Jewish council. He was a man of prominence and great significance and respectability. And here we now have a woman who's unnamed from a nowhere town. And perhaps worst of all, she's a Samaritan. Now, we, we don't really understand the culture of that back in the day. You've got to think, go back to sort of the conflict in Rwanda and think Hutu and Tutsi, because the Samaritans were the ethnic enemy of the Jews. The Jews looked down on them very arrogantly. They sort of said, you guys were taken off. You're part of the disobedient ten northern tribes that were taken by Assyria, and then you intermixed with Assyrians, and you came back to populate the land. You're the unfaithful ones. You're half-breeds. You're not true Jews. And then they had all sorts of conflict over worship and temple destruction of each other's places of worship. There was hostility between them. Yet Jesus loved both people. In verse 42, we're told that Jesus is the savior of the world. He's the savior for all types of people. Whoever you are, whatever your background, whatever your sin issue, whatever your wrestle or your struggle, he's the savior of the world. That's the point that continually is being made in this. He's the savior for proud, religious, elder brother types, Pharisee types like Nicodemus. And he's the savior for the wayward, liberal, prodigal son, and should I say daughter types like the Samaritan woman as well. He is the savior of the world. I noticed the verse as well, verse four. Maybe you spotted this. This wonderful word, had. Jesus had to go to Samaria. Now, I can't prove it to you bit of technicalities here in the original languages and things like that, but I feel like as we read the whole of John's Gospel and the whole of Scripture, there's this sense of compulsion in the heart of God. He had to go to find this woman. He had to go to meet her. He had to go to seek her out. 
It's like a divine appointment that God had set up and planned before time. He had to find her. And today is a divine appointment for you. For you. Here, online, for you. It's no accident that God has brought you here. He wants, like that woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, to deal with your shame today. But you might have a question of that. It's up on the screen. How? How? How is that possible, (laughs) right? That was what the woman asked in verse 9. She says, how? It's really interesting because it's exactly what Nicodemus asked in verse 9 of chapter 3. How? (laughs) He's like, how? How can a person be born again? And always we are asking the how questions. We get so stuck on them. How, God, are you going to do this? How is this going to make sense? How does this work? Jesus in verse 10 says, it's not about how, but who. If you knew, he says to this woman, if you knew who I am, you wouldn't worry about the how. Because I am God and I can sort out the how. Your job is just to focus and know who I am. And that's the journey that we're going to go on today. Jesus progressively reveals the beauty of his personhood to this woman. And that's what we want to do today. We're going to look at Jesus' all-seeing nature his all-knowing nature, and then his all-powerful nature. And not just as like nice theological ideas out there, but for you, for the church, for us. But before we do that, there might be somebody here, again in person online, and you're thinking, how do I know I can trust this account, right? Did it really happen? Is it a true story? Is the Bible reliable? These are really great questions. I've certainly had them in my journey. So I like every now and again just to point out a little thing or another that comes out of the passage that really helps people like that who are on that journey or helps us interact and engage with people who are on that kind of journey. And I've hinted at this one a little bit before already, but one answer is geography. Can you trust the Bible? Because it gets, yes you can, it gets the geography right. In the first four verses of this passage, John mentions four geographical places. Did you catch that? It's interesting. Throughout his whole biography, he has 76 references to geography. Bodies of water, towns, regions, and so forth. To understand the significance of that, you have to compare it to something else. So I'm going to do a little comparison here to the Gospel of Philip. We would call this a Gnostic Gospel. Gnosticism was a later belief that came about 50 to 150 years later. That's why we believe this Gospel was written quite significantly later after John's Gospel. And it claims to be the Gospel of Philip, someone who would be long since dead by the time that it had been written. Not an eyewitness, therefore. Why else are we sure about that? Well, it's not just that it contains philosophical concepts that were common to a much later period in time that weren't around so much when the Bible was being written in the first century, but because it just lacks first century eyewitness detail information. It only has, in its entirety, six references to geography, and actually only three places. One of them is Jerusalem, which it mentions four times, which is not that hard to know about because we still know about Jerusalem today, right? So if you're writing like 150 years later, like you wouldn't get that wrong. Another is the Jordan River. Again, not so hard. And the last one is Nazareth. 
perhaps the easiest of them all because Jesus' name became Jesus of Nazareth that got traveled around. So those are like the easy, obvious kind of wins. But then if you don't know the details about Samaria and places like Sychar where these things happened or Cana, all those kinds of details, you wouldn't know those. They would definitely fall out if you're writing later in time, but they would be included if you were a first century eyewitness of this kind of detail. That this person has been there. They understand the context that they're in. For me, with my kind of lawyer background, I love that kind of detail. Maybe that doesn't interest you. That's just one example of the reliability of the Bible. Right, let's get to our first point. Jesus is all-seeing. He comes with compassion to this woman, to you. Now, some, for some, the idea that God is all-seeing <laughs> might be terrible, even troubling. Perhaps it's a bit like kind of George Orwell's 1984, Big Brother. <laughs> you know, God is always watching you. The late atheist Christopher Hitchens felt that way. He described it like this. He said, you would never have a waking or sleeping moment when you were not being watched and controlled and supervised by some celestial entity from the moment of your conception to the moment of your death. It would be like living in North Korea. Now, I agree. I am not interested in having King Jong-un knowing everything about me, kind of like watching all the time. What's he doing? What's he up to? Not that he would be particularly interested in all of that, but that sounds awful, right? But what if God's kind of seeing is radically different? What if it's not condemning or about control? What if it's about compassion? So here's the thing. I'm a parent of two lovely kids. I like to see them. Duh. <laughs> that gives me joy, and I think they quite like it too. I mean, in actual fact, I would sneak into their bedrooms whilst they're asleep just because I love to see them. I'm trying to control them. It's, it's an expression of my love, this idea of seeing. I might try and rearrange my working day and week so I can sneak off to go and see them doing their clubs, gymnastics or football, swimming, and then when they see me seeing them, they're like really happy, daddy, and waving and stuff like that. Do you see there's a difference here? There's a kind of seeing that's really joyful and liberating because of the character of the person who's doing the seeing. And we should know that God's seeing is good because it's already come in the gospel account. John chapter 1, verse 48. He saw this man called Nathaniel, and there was a supernatural ability to see him. He was there under the fig tree. And he didn't just see that he was geographically there. He saw this is a man of integrity and good character. So when Jesus actually meets him, he says, I saw you under the fig tree. There's no conceit in you. And the reaction from Nathaniel is like, whoa. He felt seen, understood, known, valued. So much so that he said, Jesus, wherever you go, I want to be. I'm going to follow you for the rest of my life. Such was the impact of that seeing. There's another great story of seeing that this passage in John chapter 4 is like hyperlinking back to. And John keeps, keeps doing this, if you hadn't noticed. It's describing another story that took place at a well about a woman in desperate need who felt lost and overwhelmed. Her name is Hagar. Genesis chapter 16. She was on the run from her mistress, who had thrown her out. She was pregnant with, her, with Abraham, her mistress's husband's baby, because 
Sarah and Abraham were trying to conceive, but they couldn't, so they put pressure on this woman to have sex with Abraham, and now it had happened, and now Sarah was envious and jealous, and she'd pushed her out, and she was on the run, alone, afraid, ashamed. And God saw her, and he met with her, and he showed compassion for her, and he spoke life and hope to her, and he gave her the privilege of naming him. And she names God, one of his names. He is the God who sees me. But that is a description of the very nature of God. Quite literally, it is. He's the well of the living one who sees me. Are you seeing some of these comparisons, right? Both happening at wells. Living one, living water. This idea of seeing women in vulnerable situations. Amazing connections, showing us the heart of God. God in Jesus sees this woman, not with condemnation, but with compassion. He knows there's something not right here. There's a reason why she's isolating in shame, but he doesn't back away. He leans in with love. Culturally, he should have walked away 20 meters turned his back on her. That was the cultural requirement of what he should have done in that moment. Now that was there because they wanted to protect women from dangerous men. But for this woman, that would have just intensified her sense of shame. So what does Jesus do? In the gentlest way possible, he honors her dignity and he asks her for help. I don't even know if he needed help. Will you give me a drink? He crosses amazing cultural boundaries, male, female, Jewish, Samaritan, rabbi, suspect woman of moral status. And he would have been criticized for this. He would have been shamed for it. But he was more than willing to scorn the shame. Why? Because he wanted to take this woman's shame from her and put it on himself. That's the heart of God. Will you sit with Jesus? Do you sit with him? Do you let him look at you? Really look at you. Who you really are. And the only way that he can. What this woman does next is she does something quite brilliant that we all need to do. She just said, Jesus, what you have, I need. <laughs> I've spoken to you enough. What you have, I need. I want it. You've got living water. I don't have that. I need what you've got. Can I have it? Can I have it? Verse 15. She, she's eager like that. Have you done that yet? If you haven't done that yet, do you continue to do that? It's a moment of humility where you simply say to Jesus, to God, I don't have what I need to survive this life or on into eternity. God, <laughs> I'm empty. I'm dry. It's worse than a 41 degree weather warning. I'm spiritually dehydrated. Help me. You need to say that to God regularly. She did. Jeremiah, a prophet, several hundred years before, he warned us about this. It's an extraordinary overlap with this passage. 
He says, they have forsaken me. The spring of living water. Living water. And have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. This is why there is so much dissatisfaction in our world. Because people are trying to drink from the wrong sources. Power, position, porn, praise, all this kind of stuff like that doesn't ultimately satisfy. They're broken systems. Promise much, deliver nothing in the long term. And we have to recognize that and own that. Only the Savior of the world can satisfy our deepest thirst and longing. And he comes with compassion to help us to understand that. That's the first point. We're going to get to the second point in a minute, but first we're going to have a Bible reading. John chapter 4, verses 16 to 26. He told her, go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, Believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshippers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. The second point is that Jesus is all-knowing. He accepts with agape love. Jesus knew this woman's story. He knows your story. Jesus knew all of her skeletons in the closet, and he knows yours. And he doesn't back away, as I've said, and he accepts. He, he leans in with love. And his acceptance is the answer to our rejection issues and struggles in life. I don't know if I've ever met a person who doesn't have a fear of rejection. We all have it, and, and rejection and shame are almost like best friends. They kind of go together. But Jesus wants to liberate you out of that shame and rejection. But it's all got a bit personal, and I'm aware people are getting a bit hot and uncomfortable, maybe, and awkward, so we're going to pause for some jokes. <laughs> are you ready for this? Rejection jokes of all things, because sometimes I think it's good to laugh about the things that we struggle with kind of helps us to sort of name it and own it in a way. Um, laughter is the medicine. Laughter helps the medicine go down sometimes. So here, here they are. Sorry if you think they're terrible. Um, I recently got a rejection letter from the Origami University. 
I still don't know what to make of it. Oh, a little murmur of, <laughs> oh no, we're in trouble. Uh, I recently actually went to the library and I spoke with my librarian and I said to her, have you got a book on how to overcome rejection? She said, no. So I started weeping and shaking uncontrollably. <laughs> you didn't like that one either. <laughs> at, least we've had a, at least we've had a moment. My wife found that one really funny. <laughs> there we go. Um, where was I? I totally lost my place now. I was saying, seriously, loads of us, we wrestle with rejection. It's a battle. It's a struggle. And we wrestle with the shame that goes with it. And Jesus is here to help us get out of it. How does he do it with the woman? Well, it's really interesting that I think he invites her into a place of confession. Go call your husband, he says to her. And she says, I have no husband. And I just imagine at this point the charmingest smile on Jesus' face. I know. <laughs> You've had five husbands, haven't you? And the man that you're currently living with, he graciously doesn't say sleeping with, he doesn't say living with, is not your husband. And then her response is, I see you are a prophet. Or in other words, you have spoken true. This is who I am. This is my story. That's, that's what I'm like. Do you see the beautiful way Jesus has led her? Not to condemn her, but to bring her out from hiding in the shadows of shame and darkness with compassion and love. He just draws her tenderly out to lead her in the way of life everlasting and to teach her about what it means to be a true worshiper. It's a gloriously beautiful moment for her. He's wooing her with love. And that's really interesting. Because wells in Scripture are also meeting places for marriage. Moses met his wife at a well. Jacob met his wife at a well. In fact, we are deliberately hyperlinked back to Genesis chapter 29 by John to say, this is happening at that well where Jacob met his wife. So you've got this whole marriage theme going on here. And then in the previous chapter, John chapter 3, verse 29, we're told that Jesus is the bridegroom, the definite article bridegroom. Wow. So in some ways, this woman, and the Samaritan woman by the well, she figuratively represents Jewish and Gentile unfaithfulness. You see that because they've intermixed together. The Jews were taken away by the Assyrians and the ten northern tribes. They were judged and they were brought back in and they intermixed with non-Jewish people, Gentiles. And there she is, this woman. And now here comes Jesus. And get this, knowing that seven is a significant number in Scripture, the day in which God rested from creation and it's often considered the day of perfection and completion, she's had five husbands. The man she's living with, number six, is not her husband. Jesus is number seven. The perfect husband and bridegroom is coming for his bride. Do you see it? To woo her and to love her. 
to welcome her back. We even have a picture here of the true and better Hosea, this prophet from the Old Testament. And God said to him, I know your wife, Goma, she's unfaithful. She's been unfaithful to you, but I want you to go back and marry her and rue her back in and draw her close to you again because that's my heart for my people. That's what I am going to do for them. And you read about it in Hosea chapter 2, perhaps one of the most beautiful chapters in Scripture where God is saying, I'm going to go and allure her again. Though she's been unfaithful, I'm going to woo her. I'm going to speak to her tenderly and draw her back in. Wow. And he says that, that, that her valley of Accor, this place of trouble and shame and disgrace, would become a doorway of hope and joy and life through renewed and rekindled intimate relationship with God. This is beautiful. It's beautiful. God stands at the altar for everyone here. And he has already said to each one of you, I do. His question is, will you? Will you have me? How do you respond? Well, we do what the woman did. We confess our sin. Confident that he'll forgive us. We bring it to him. We come out from hiding in the darkness of shame and we come out into the light of his love so that we can be transformed by him. Jesus comes with compassion. Jesus accepts with agape love whoever you are and whatever you've done. And that leads us to the third and final point and the last Bible reading which has an extra special bit of psychedelic um, lovely flickering and fluttering but it will go back to normal Um, but let's watch that just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with the woman but no one asked what do you want or why are you talking with her then leaving her water jar the woman went went back to the town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples turned to each other and said, Could someone have brought him food? My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Don't you have a saying, it's still four months until harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now, the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the one, the saying, one sows and another reaps, is true. I send you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work, and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, We no longer believe just because of what you said. For now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the saviour of the world. Brilliant. The final point is Jesus builds up for breakthrough. Or Jesus empowers for harvest. That's what he's talking to his disciples about here. Harvest. Harvest. And we get the most moving transformation story that you can imagine. you just got to kind of try and put yourself back into the story, into the scene. Here's this woman. She's been hiding, self-isolating in shame. And now she's running. 
She's running, charging to the very people that she's been hiding from, telling them, I need to tell you, I need to tell you about Jesus. I just imagine her sort of like jumping up and down for joy, for freedom that's come to her. She just can't, you can imagine, she's kind of like me, I can't get the words out fast enough, I'm so excited. Wow, what a transformation. She's been hiding, these people, they know her story. She's been hiding from them, and now what, what has happened to her? Wow, what a transformation, what a change. And it says, many from this town, Sychar, came to believe that Jesus was the Savior of the world through this woman, through this woman. Wow. Her transformation touched an entire town. Her shame was no longer a cause Her sin was no longer a cause for shame, but celebration. Her past didn't define her anymore. She was just going to live and go for Jesus. And notice as well that it's at her point of weakness, her point of vulnerability, her point of shame that Jesus' glory is made manifest. That's so interesting, isn't it? We spend most of our time hiding those things. What if Jesus wants to put them on display for his glory? In our weakness, he is strong. They were able to see more clearly the power of Christ because it happened at the very point of her issue of shame and vulnerability. So if you find yourself walking with a limp more than ever in these post-ish pandemic times, good you find yourself feeling weak and vulnerable and struggling, maybe your mental health has dropped a little bit, good. These are all opportunities for God's glory to be seen more clearly in you. An unnamed woman from an unknown town. She had no theological qualifications. She had no certificate in evangelism. She had no experience of evangelism. She just went. She almost led an entire town to faith. Boom. What was the qualification? What did she need? She just sat with Jesus. That's it. Sometimes we make things so complicated. And all Jesus would say is, come sit with me. Let me take your shame. Let me hear your story. Let you let, experience me. Be seen by me. Let transform you. And boom, you want to go for him. We get this wonderful insight into the heart of Christ in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. And it's it's a moment where the scriptures say, For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. What was the joy? What, What was the joy as he's in the agony of the cross, that he's able to look through all the suffering that he's enduring, what is that joy that holds him, that overcomes? What is the joy that is set before him that sustains him, that he's able to make little of the shame that he's enduring? He's enduring the worst possible shaming imaginable. That's what the cross was, by the way. way. It was the unpersoning of a human being. And you're basically sort of saying, Do not go the way of this horrible wretch. We're shaming them. And that's what happened to Jesus, though he was innocent. How is he? What is the joy that enables him to think so little of that shame? 
Or let's ask it another way. What is he thirsty for? What is he thirsty for? Because he asks a question to the woman at the well. Why are you thirsty? Or rather, will you give me a drink? Will you give me a drink? Maybe there's something deeper in that question than just his request for a need. Because from the cross, John 19, he cries out, I thirst. What is the longing in the heart of God? What is the joy? It's you. It's his church. That is what he says to his disciples. My food is to do the will of the one who sent me. What is it that satisfies his thirst? It is dying to save you. It is taking your shame upon himself. It is setting you free. It is liberating you. It is ravishing you with his love. It is transforming you so that he gets to be a proud kind of big brother and see you run for him unshackled by shame. Free, liberated. That's what his heart beats for. Breaking the power of sin in our lives. Don't scorn Jesus like so many do. Scorn shame instead. How do you do that? You can think little of shame by thinking much of Jesus. All seeing. All knowing. Almighty. All powerful. The glorious Savior. There's one more thing before we come to respond and worship and pray. It's verse 28. It's a very interesting addition of a particular detail. And it's that the woman at the well left her water jar behind. So interesting. I believe that's there to tell us it didn't matter to her anymore. Wasn't significant anymore. Earthly things were nothing compared to the living water of Jesus. She wasn't going to drink at a broken cistern anymore. She had Jesus, living water, life. And so she was going to go for him. So what do you need to leave behind? What's your water jar? What are the broken systems that you need to say, I'm not doing that anymore. I'm not doing that. That's not important anymore. I'm just going to, I only want to drink of Jesus. I want to drink his living water. Let that bubble up in me like a river flowing out of everlasting life. That's my call. And then go for him. How are you going to tell people about him this week? How are you going to make time to sit with him, be with him, let him look at you, and then run for him? To whom will you run? Who will you invite? Say, come and see Jesus. Come and see a man who I've met who's... He's told everything about me. That's what's so interesting, isn't it? Jesus didn't tell this woman everything about she'd ever done. He just told her about the issues of shame in her life that seemed to so define her, it felt to her that that was everything. He wanted her to be completely free and liberated from the things which most held her back in life because he loves people and he wants them to find freedom. We have a comedy night this week, Andy Kind. We have a healing service next week. We have services every Sunday. So many opportunities to say to people, come and see, come and see. Let's pray.
as individuals and as a corporate family, the church, so that you, Father and Son, might be willing to pour out your Holy Spirit upon us without measure, to send us out, to empower us for harvest, that it would be our food to do the will of the one who is sending us. It would be our drink to do the will of the one who is sending us, that you would be our chief satisfaction. Nothing else in this world would satisfy us, only you, Jesus. Lord, we want to be those people that you seek. It says that you seek those who would worship in spirit and in truth. Let that be us even now as we come to worship. Let us worship in the truth of not hiding from you anymore, but being real to you, confessing our sin, opening the door to worship in the power of the Holy Spirit, not by might, not by human strength and flesh. We know we can't save ourselves, but by your Spirit, Lord, you can do all things. Come in this moment. Help us to adore you. Let people be set free from sin and shame and doubt and discouragement. Lord, heal and restore your people. Woo us now like you did this precious woman all those years ago. Amen. Thanks for listening to Sermon Audio from Westminster Chapel. If you'd like to partner with us in making disciples and sharing the gospel, please consider making a one-off or regular donation. Visit westminsterchapel.org.uk forward slash giving to find out how.